is Hintertales. I'm Rachel Dunstan-Muller, with stories of curious people, places, and events from the margins of history. A quick note before I begin. This episode explores the second half of Anne Sullivan's remarkable life. If you haven't already listened to Part 1, Anne Sullivan, Life Before Helen, you might want to pause and go back to that episode first. It's August, 1886. Just six years ago, Anne Sullivan was an illiterate 14-year-old and a resident of the Tewkesbury Almshouse. Now, at the age of 20, she's a graduate of the Perkins Institution for the Blind. She spent the last two months at the Cape Cod home of a kind benefactor, swimming in the ocean, lying on the sand, and reflecting on what might lie ahead. Anne is feeling more than a little anxious as she looks to the future. Her graduation has given her a basic education, but it hasn't prepared her for a specific career. She could try to raise funds to continue her education to become a teacher. She could look after other people's children. She could sell books from door to door. If it came to it, she could even wash dishes in a local restaurant. Anything to keep out of the poorhouse. And that's where we take up the thread of our story. Anne was still deliberating over these options when a letter arrived, forwarded by the director of Perkins. A family in Alabama was looking for a governess for their deaf and blind daughter. Mrs. Keller had read that against all odds, Another deaf and blind girl had been taught successfully at Perkins some decades ago, and so her husband, Captain Keller, wrote a letter asking if someone from Perkins might be able to come and do the same for their six-year-old daughter, Helen. Anne was interested at once, but she knew that she would need more preparation before she could even attempt a challenge of this magnitude. So she left the beach, returned to Perkins, and immersed herself in the records of the school's founder, Dr. Samuel Howe. Almost 50 years earlier, Dr. Howe had accomplished the seemingly impossible with a girl very much like Helen. Her name was Laura Bridgman, and she was just two years old when scarlet fever took both her sight and her hearing. When she was seven, Dr. Howe convinced Laura's parents to let him take her to Perkins, where he began what was largely an experiment in educational methods. Through trial and error, he was able to teach Laura, first the raised letters which were then used by the blind to read, then the finger alphabet used by the deaf, which he spelled into her hand. Best of all, from Anne's perspective, Dr. Howe recorded everything he did with scientific precision. In other words, when Anne finally set off on the train for Alabama in March 1887, she had a precise blueprint of how to proceed. 
She knew exactly what needed to be accomplished, and she had a very clear set of steps to help get her there. But a plan is one thing. Implementing that plan is quite another. The Keller family was very anxious to meet the new teacher from Perkins. In the absence of modern communication, they met every train for two days. Poor Anne was not at her best when she finally arrived. She'd had yet another operation on her eyes just days before her departure, and the lengthy journey, with its cinders and coal dust and far too many stopovers, had not done her any favors. She was exhausted when she stepped down from the train, her eyes red and swollen. But still, she couldn't wait to meet Helen. It was a memorable meeting, to be sure. There was no way to explain what was happening to Helen, who was now seven, but Helen could sense from all the bustle around her that something significant was coming. When Anne finally arrived in the yard, Helen rushed at her with enough force to nearly knock her over. Then she jerked Anne's bag from her hand and had a tantrum when her mother tried to take the bag back. That was the tone of most of their encounters over the next few days. Helen was intelligent and could see that clearly, but she was also as untamed as any wild animal. Helen was used to doing exactly as she pleased. She did not like rules or boundaries, and she had a truly formidable temper. She'd been surrounded by kindness all her life, and yet her poor family members were often black and blue from her frequent angry assaults. In fact, within the first few days, Helen succeeded in knocking out one of her new teacher's front teeth. Anne could see immediately that her first challenge would be to tame Helen, to get her under some kind of control without breaking her spirit. This, in fact, is what was done for Anne herself by her favorite teacher back at Perkins, although in a less dramatic way, of course. But the principle was the same. The lawless side of Helen's mind had to be tamed and disciplined so that she could learn and reach her full potential. Anne was simply paying it forward. But Anne could also see that the only way to do this successfully was to first separate Helen from her family, since Helen's parents and siblings couldn't bear to say no to Helen or to see her suffer in any way, even if it was for her own good. Conveniently, there was a little cottage on the property that would work perfectly for this purpose. So that Helen would not know that they were still on her parents' property, all the furniture was rearranged so she wouldn't recognize it, and she and Anne went for a long ride in the carriage before moving in. As you likely already know, things did not go well initially. In fact, it was such a disaster during the first few days that after looking through the window, 
and seeing his beloved daughter sitting on the floor in stubborn despair, Captain Keller nearly sent Anne packing. Thankfully for all concerned, disaster was averted. A wise cousin talked him into giving Anne just a few more days to prove her plan. Anne's method was simple. She was firm but kind, setting boundaries, refusing to give in to Helen's tantrums. And with persistence, it worked. On March 20th, 15 days after her arrival, Anne wrote triumphantly, My heart is singing for joy this morning. A miracle has happened. The light of understanding has shone upon my little pupil's mind, and behold, all things are changed. The wild little creature of two weeks ago has been transformed into a gentle child. She is sitting beside me as I write, her face serene and happy, crocheting a long red chain of scotch wool. She learned the stitch this week and is very proud of the achievement. When she succeeded in making a chain that would reach across the room, she patted herself on the arm and put the first work of her hands lovingly against her cheek. She lets me kiss her now, and when she is in a particularly gentle mood, she will sit in my lap for a minute or two. The great step, the step that counts, has been taken. The little savage has learned her first lesson in obedience and finds the yoke easy. It now remains my pleasant task to direct and mold the beautiful intelligence that is beginning to stir in the child's soul. If the first great step was to teach Helen obedience, the second was to teach her that objects had names and that those names could be spelled out into her hand with the manual alphabet. Young Helen was more than happy to copy the finger movements her teacher made, as if it were a game, but she hadn't made the connection that actual words were being spelled. That is, until one fateful moment on April 5th, exactly one month after Anne's arrival. In Anne's own words, We went out to the pump house, and I made Helen hold her mug under the spout while I pumped. As the cold water gushed forth, filling the mug, I spelled W-A-T-E-R in Helen's free hand. The word, coming so close upon the sensation of cold water rushing over her hand, seemed to startle her. She dropped the mug and stood as one transfixed. A new light came into her face. She spelled water several times. Then she dropped on the ground and asked for its name and pointed to the pump and the trellis, and suddenly turning around she asked for my name. I spelled teacher. Just then the nurse brought Helen's little sister into the pump house, and Helen spelled baby and pointed to the nurse. All the way back to the house, she was highly excited and learned the name of every object she touched. As young as she was, Helen understood on some level what she'd just received. The key to language 
to understanding and communicating with the world, a world from which she'd been cut off since she was a toddler. That night, for the very first time, Helen snuggled up beside her teacher at her own initiative and gave her a kiss. Up to that moment, Annie had never recovered from the loneliness that followed her brother Jimmy's death in the poorhouse. Now, for the first time, that loneliness was gone. As she wrote later, I thought my heart would burst, it was so full of joy. But as significant as that moment at the pump was, it was just the beginning. Helen had a voracious appetite for learning, and Anne was more than ready to meet that hunger. All day long, Anne spelled complete sentences into Helen's hand, expanding both her vocabulary and teaching her sentence structure and language the way that babies and young children learn, by being immersed in language. It was still the 19th century, but Anne had very progressive ideas about education. As much as she could, she conducted Helen's schooling outside, under a mulberry bush, or in the family cemetery, or even up in a tree. The lessons were as hands-on as possible. Helen learned flowers by their shapes and smells. She touched and held small animals. She even handled a monkey and rode an elephant when the circus came to town. Seven months after her arrival in Alabama, Anne wrote a confidential letter to her benefactor, Mrs. Hopkins. I want to say something which is for your ears alone. Something within me tells me that I shall succeed beyond my dreams. I know that Helen has remarkable powers, and I believe I shall be able to develop and mold them. I cannot tell how I know such things. I had no idea a short time ago how to go to work. I was feeling about in the dark. But somehow I know now, and I know that I know. I cannot explain it, but when difficulties rise, I am not perplexed or doubtful. I know how to meet them. I seem to divine Helen's peculiar needs. She is no ordinary child, and people's interest in her education will be no ordinary interest. Anne's words proved to be prophetic, for that is exactly what happened. Helen's progress and education far surpassed that of Laura Bridgman, the blind and deaf student that Dr. Howe had taught almost 50 years earlier. Helen's progress, in fact, was stunning. With Anne as her tutor, she became a student at Perkins and studied arithmetic, geology, zoology, botany, and reading via Braille. She not only caught up with her same-age peers, she passed them. When she was ten years old, Helen took a series of lessons from a pioneer teacher of oral speech to learn to speak aloud. Helen had eleven lessons from the expert, and then it was Anne's turn. Since Helen couldn't watch her teacher's lips and tongue and jaw, she had to learn by feeling their movement, 
even to the point of putting her fingers into Anne's mouth and far down her throat until Anne was nearly sick. But this barely scratches the surface when it comes to describing the sacrifices that Anne made for Helen and would continue to make for the rest of her life. The Keller family wasn't wealthy, and at some point it became impossible for them to continue paying Anne's salary. Other employment offers began to trickle in, financially attractive offers to entice Anne away from Helen. But Anne wasn't with Helen for the income. A bond had formed between the two, a mutual devotion that nothing on earth could break. Money is necessary to survive, however, and somehow it always came in, from friends and benefactors and other sources. After her initial education at Perkins, Helen had her heart set on attending Radcliffe College at Harvard University. But to do this, she would not only have to raise the necessary funds, which was doable, she would also have to spend an additional four years of study just to prepare for the entrance examinations. Anne sat with Helen in each class at her prep school and in each private tutoring session, carefully spelling every word of every lecture into Helen's hand. Then, when the school day was over, Anne's labor continued as she read and hand-spelled for Helen all the required textbooks and readings that weren't available in Braille, which, of course, was all too many of them. Together, they worked their way through German and French, Latin and Greek, physics, geometry, and algebra. When Helen finally took the tests with an independent examiner, everyone recognized that there were, in fact, two people being tested, Helen Keller and her devoted teacher. Both came through with flying colors, and Helen was admitted into Radcliffe College. There was a price for Anne's devotion, however, and it was more than financial. Despite continued operations, her eyesight was never strong, and the reading she did for Helen only made them worse. It distressed Helen, knowing that her beloved teacher was sacrificing her own sight for her benefit. But Anne was as stubborn and as driven as Helen, Nothing and no one could convince her to rest or back off. She was determined to see Helen shine. And Helen did shine. She attended Radcliffe for the next four years, reading Braille until her fingertips bled. And any books she couldn't get in Braille? Anne read for her, spelling every word of every page into her hand. Anne's fingers were almost never still, as again she sat through every lecture and translated every word from every professor or instructor. When Helen received her Bachelor of Arts degree with honors at the end of those four years, it was a tribute as much to Anne's dedication and perseverance as it was to Helen's. As Anne had foretold, 
Helen went on to accomplish great things, becoming a world-famous author and speaker and advocating for the deaf and the blind. But always, always Anne was by her side. In 1902, a third person entered their relationship in the form of John Albert Macy, a literary critic and teacher at Harvard. His first role in their lives was editing an edition of Helen's autobiography, The Story of My Life. But it wasn't long before he was also expressing romantic interest in Anne, with Helen's enthusiastic blessing. It took some convincing, but Anne finally accepted his marriage proposal in 1905. Their first years were happy by all reports, all three of them living together in an old farmhouse on seven acres in rural Massachusetts. But gradually the relationship began to unravel, and they went their separate ways, although they never officially divorced. Biographers have suggested a number of possible factors for the breakup. Financial stress, Anne's fiery temper, an 11-year age difference. But everyone agrees. It can't have been easy to compete with Anne's devotion to Helen. The two women had a daunting schedule following Helen's graduation. Writing books, responding to mountains of correspondence, and traveling for frequent speaking tours. The work took a toll on them both, but it was especially hard on Anne's health and her eyesight. Ophthalmologists, or oculists as they were then known, warned Anne on more than one occasion that if she didn't stop immediately, she would soon be totally blind. The difficulty was finding another companion for Helen, someone with enough stamina to even temporarily replace Anne, so that Anne could get the rest she needed. In the end, they found a wonderful young Scottish woman named Polly Thompson, who arrived to assist them in the fall of 1914 and never left. Anne was often asked why she had devoted her life to just one person, instead of extending her gifts to a wider sphere of influence. But to Anne, that was never a question. There was only Helen. She never felt that she had any great message to share with the wider world. If I had felt so, she said, I should have left Helen long ago to preach it. Even though the two women were inseparable, Helen was often asked by members of the public just what had happened to her childhood teacher. This question would come even as Anne was standing right by her side. It was a measure of Anne's humility that she had no desire to compete with Helen's fame and celebrity. She was perfectly content in the shadows. In 1931, both Helen and Anne were offered honorary doctorate degrees from Temple University in Philadelphia. Helen accepted at once, and Anne, just as quickly, very graciously declined. Dr. Newton, the representative of the university, tried to persuade Anne through a series of letters. When the letters failed to change her mind, 
he made a speech at Helen's convocation, urging members of the audience to rise if they agreed that the honorary doctorate should be conferred on Anne Sullivan by force if necessary. The only person who didn't rise was Anne herself. In the end, she accepted the honorary degree. In October 1936, at the age of 70 and now completely blind, Anne Sullivan fell into a coma as a result of coronary thrombosis. She died five days later with Helen holding her hand. They had been devoted companions just short of 50 years. Following her death, Anne's body was cremated and her ashes interred in a memorial at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Anne was the first woman to be recognized in this way. When Helen died 32 years later, her ashes were placed in the cathedral as well, alongside those of her beloved teacher. My primary source for this hintertale was the book The Deliverer of Helen Keller, Anne Sullivan Macy. It was written by Nella Brady and first published in 1934. This episode of Hintertales was written, narrated, and produced by Rachel Dunstan Muller with music and sound effects by zapsplat.com. Learn more about my work at racheldunstonmuller.com. 